Okay, well, last week, uh, Mark gave the, shared the word with us, and that was really good, wasn't it? Wasn't it really good? It was really good. Next Sunday, we're going to have hear from Marshall Huffman, and the one after that, we're going to hear from our friend Dave Mark, who's only one of those guys that are here today. <laughs> we're all on vacation. So um, looking forward to hearing from all you guys in the weeks to come. So I'm going to be sharing something different today. I'm going to come back to the message on grace and what, how, uh, what, how grace empowers us, what it empowers us to do. But today, being the day of Pentecost, I want to look at some things from the Bible, and I want to look at types and shadows from the Old Testament uh, of the tabernacle, the temple of Moses and Solomon. I want to look at those types and shadows and show you what they point to, because all of those things point to, all the things are there to point to the symbols of the Word and point to Christ. When you go back and read the Old Testament, sometimes you wonder, like, what does this mean? What is that? I don't understand that today. Look for types and shadows of Jesus in it, and the Word will come alive to you in the Old Testament. It would just, it would be, it won't be able to put it down. The study will be doing. So when Moses was on Mount Sinai, God gave him a specific, specific instructions on how to make this tabernacle, exact dimensions. And we can see this in Exodus twenty-five forty. It says, "See to it that you make make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain." The tabernacle was built with three distinct sections, and there were the, first the outer courts. I think we have a picture there for you, um, somewhere the, of the, there we go. The outer courtyard, the holy place, and the holy of holies. Similar to God himself, we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Also similar to how God made you, spirit, soul, and body. So we can also think of the outside wall of that is like, the temple of God, but also now that you are the temple of God. If you're in Christ, now His Spirit lives in you. You're now the temple of God. So the outer court walls were seven and a half feet high, 150 feet long, and 75 feet wide. And they go into very specific details of what they are made of and what fabrics and how they are woven together. These guys had some serious skill. I mean, and the Bible says that the Holy Spirit filled them with His Spirit to craft some of these things, which is amazing. Who knew the Holy Spirit would even help you be more crafty. So um, though this wall here, point two here, is uh, prohibited and protected the people from entering God's temple in an unauthorized manner, and they could, all, could, they could be definitely hurt by doing that. So this wall also is a picture to demonstrate that the way to God's holy presence was not yet made available. They were on the outside looking in. And you know, for mankind, if you were not a priest... Or a high priest, no one could enter even the outer courtyard. You had to bring your offering to the first doorway and wait for the priest to show up, and they would take the offering from you and bring it in there and sacrifice it for you. You were not allowed to enter in there. And thank God today, there is a way into there. Amen? There is a way. So in this, in this picture we see on the wall, we have three main doors. The first one to the outer courtyard, then the holy place, the holy of holies. And uh, there's only one way into each place. Just like there's only one way to the Father now, that's through Jesus. And the, what the Jews called each of these doors, the first one was called the way. The second one was called the life, the truth. And the third one was called the life. That's what these doors, these, the third one was actually a veil. That's what they're called. And we think of Jesus saying in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I just love those types of shadows in the Bible. You look in th through and read Jewish history and study these things and find some of these things out. It's just awesome. So um, just as there's only one way into the tabernacle, 
only one way to the holy place, the holy of holies, there's only one way to the Father, only one way to God, and that's through Jesus. We can't go through Buddha, can't go through anybody else, we go through Jesus. And to enter this first doorway represents man's need to go to Jesus for our salvation. In John 10, 9, uh, Jesus said this, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Amen. I just love those types of shadows. I just love that. So um, everyone, again, in the Old Testament, everyone, no one was allowed to go in there unless they were a priest or a high priest. So all of us would, in, uh, would have to wait outside. But today, you can go in past the outer court. You can go, actually, the doors aren't even there anymore. It wasn't just the first door that got torn down, amen? Jesus, the Word of God says he tore down the whole temple. Now the Spirit of God can go into you, and you can go into the Spirit of God, and you, can have, you have access, amen? And it wasn't because of something that you did. It's something that Jesus did for you, okay? So once the priests went through the first door, they were in the outer courtyard area, which was open to the sky. They received natural light from the sun, moon, and stars. And inside that first, the whole temple area, there was seven pieces of furniture. The first one was called the altar, then the labor, the menorah or the candelabra, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, the veil, and the Ark of the Covenant. And today we're not going to look at all seven of those. We're going to look at the first three. So the first one is the altar. The first things that the priest would see when he walked through this door would be the altar. But before he could do anything on the altar, he had to go wash himself in the, in the, in the labor first. We'll come look at that later. But the altar represents the cross of Jesus Christ. All these, all these symbols, all these piece of furniture all point to Christ, and they all point to the Word of God. So the altar was centrally located in the outer courtyard, standing four and a half feet high and seven and a half feet square. I think there's a picture for you guys. The altar was raised on a mound of soil higher than its surrounding furniture, just like the cross was raised up on Mount Calvary. The altar was made of wood from the acacia tree and overlaid with bronze, symbolizing judgment on sin and Jesus and how Jesus was judged for our sins. Bronze is always a symbol of judgment. So the brazen altar had four sides with four horns. You can see that at the four corners, which is symbolic of the uh, represents the four points on the cross. You can see right above me. Four meaning the sacrifice is effectual for salvation to the four corners of the world, north, south, east, and west. His sacrifice was effectual for all of it. The fire on the altar was to be kept burning at all times, which was responsible for the priests to do that. So there were um, daily sacrifices were offered there, uh, morning and evening sacrifices, and it was sacrificed throughout the day. But there was, I'm going to focus on mostly just the two of them. Twice a day, evening and morning, a lamb was sacrificed on the altar. One was at 9 a.m., and the other was at 3 p.m. Now I want to just look at the holiness, the sovereignty, the wisdom, the amazingness of God, just thinking about these things. But... Um, We'll, we'll come into this, but after, the, after each sacrifice took place, the, uh, a guy, a priest would blow the shofar and blow this, his trumpet over the tabernacle and proclaim to people that your sins are covered again. Every morning, every evening at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m., once the lamb was slain, this shofar blast would go out and echo through the, this, the area and the city. And there's actually archaeological evidence today of where the trumpeter stood in Jerusalem to blow the trumpet in Solomon's temple. And anyone in Jerusalem in the walled city or close to the walls would hear this 
trumpet blasts go out, and it would, it would proclaim this high cost, this high expense that it cost for our sins. It was a high expense. It was a high cost. And in the Old Testament, they paid for it. Out of their own pocket, they paid for every lamb, every goat, every cow, everything that was sacrificed. It came out of their own pockets they paid for. In the New Testament, it was paid for by God himself. He paid the highest price. So think about this. Like I said, the morning evening sacrifice is 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. Mark 15, 25 says this. It was 9 in the morning when they crucified him. That's when they nailed him to the cross. It was at 9 a.m. Do you think that's a coincidence when God does these things? Okay, you think, okay, you're Jesus, and the Roman soldiers have arrested you, they've beaten you, done all these things to you. You think they stopped to check their watch? Hmm, wait, 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 it's only 8.55, hold on. We gotta wait till nine. They had no idea what they were doing, but God knew. And God's foreknowledge, his sovereignty, his amazingness that he is, it happened at the exact time. And in Mark uh, 15.34 it says this, it says, at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried in a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And verse 37 says, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. What time? 3 p.m. That's amazing. So think about the parallels of this. At 9 a.m., a priest took this lamb uh, on the altar in front, of the, in front of the temple, asking God to forgive the people for their sins. And at the same time, Jesus at 9 a.m. was nailed to the cross. And the very first thing Jesus said as he hung on the cross was, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. He's asking God to forgive the people that are crucifying him right there and all of us also. Um, and as a priest performed his duty of sacrificing the lamb just a short distance away, Jesus literally prayed the same prayer that, we'd, that the Father would forgive them. Then at 3 p.m., another lamb died in a and when Jesus was nearing the last moments of his life, in the NIV cultural background Bible, study Bible says, it was part of the first century tradition for the priests in the temple to quote Psalm 31.5, and he asked God to forgive his people as he took the life of this innocent lamb. Well, Psalm 31.5 says this, into your hands I commit my spirit. The very last thing that Jesus said, Psalm 31.5, you can see in Luke 23.46 Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And the Bible doesn't say he whispered this. It says he screamed it or he shouted it. I'll show you this in Luke 23, 46. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And right then the trumpet blew and the people knew their sins were covered. They thought for another day. Or if they would told him it would be for another year. But this was actually for life. On that day, when the blood of the real lamb was slain, the blood of Jesus covered our sins forever. Amen. Amen. It's just amazing. So the altar in the outer courtyard was a type and shadow of the cross of Jesus Christ. The next thing we see in the courtyard is the, the labor. And before the, uh, a sacrifice could be made, and before the priests could go into the holy place, they had to make sure they were clean. Because if you try to enter... You try to sacrifice an animal or go into the holy place and you hadn't washed the dirt off your hands or feet, you would be killed. I don't know if fire came down from heaven or another priest saw you weren't clean enough. They killed you. Didn't say how you were going to die, but you're going to die. You were not allowed to go in there. So think about this for a minute. How clean must you be right now for you to enter the holy place? And do you have the ability to clean yourself? 
Oh, come on. No, you don't. But how clean did God make you? Amen. It's a work of God, okay? So the laver was filled with water and located between the bronze altar and the entrance to the holy place. And you can see it has a top part and a bottom part. The bottom part is where they washed their feet, and the top part is where they washed their hands and their arms and the blood off their face, whatever happened when they sacrificed the animal. So um, unlike the other items of furniture used in the tabernacle, the bronze labor dimensions are not specified. They don't say how big it was because it's the power, of God's, the power of God to wash and cleanse our sins is limitless. There's no limit. There were no dimensions given. So Exodus 38.8 tells us this. is very interesting. He made the labor of bronze in its brass of bronze with the bronze mirrors of the serving women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. This tells us that the labor was made from mirrors that the women used outside of the tent of meeting, outside of the outer courtyard area. And I think God had a good idea when he chose the mirror of women because mirror tent, women tend to look in the mirror more than men. <laughs> yeah? No? Funny? No? <laughs> Too serious, too soon to, to, to right, joke. But yeah, my house, they seem to do that. Lauren and Holly definitely do that more than we do. I have to have them tell me, hey, did you look in the mirror today? Sometimes, like, your hair is sticking up everywhere. I'm like, ah, oh, well, I don't care. But, so, anyway, um, but in those days, these ladies' mirrors were made, uh, were not made with glass and like they're made today. They're actually made of this bronze, this polished brass, and they had to be flawless in order for the women to accept them as a mirror. And that's what they used. Uh, and they melted that down and made the, the labor there. So again, God required that the priests had to be absolutely clean before they could offer a sacrifice and before they could go into the holy place. And so they had these mirrors, they, these bronze mirrors, and they'd look in them and see, oh, there's still a spot here, and oh, there's still a, oh, I missed a spot here. And just make sure they wash themselves totally clean to get all that blood or dirt from their feet totally off them before they try to enter because for them, it was life or death. They're going to die if they miss a spot, Okay. So, at the cross, um, let me say this first. When the priest washed their hands in the water of the labor, the blood washed off them, and all of a sudden the blood in the labor was mixed, the water and the blood were mixed together. Water and blood. The same picture you see with Jesus when he was pierced in his side through with a spear. What came out of the side? Water and blood poured out of our Savior. And at the cross, that's what happened. So, the, the cross, the, the labor points to... Uh, the blood and the water mixed to redeem us from judgment. And so the labor is a type and shadow of Jesus washing us clean from our sins. Amen. Now I'm telling you, salvation is salvation by faith. We are the righteous of God through faith in what Jesus did. Not in your church attendance or your tithing records or anything else. We do good things because we have been saved, not do good things to become saved. That your salvation is 100% a work done by the power of God before we were even born. And you can see the types and shadows of it in the Old Testament that we're pointing to Christ. Look at this in 1 Corinthians 6.11. And such were some, yeah, 6.11. And such some of you were, talking about those who were sinful beforehand, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of God. You were washed. How? You were sanctified. How? And justified. How? By the Spirit of God. You were washed in the spiritual laver of the Word of God, and He made you absolutely spotless, clean, without defect. Or you couldn't enter. Amen? You couldn't enter. So, you have been washed, 
you've been sanctified and justified. Again, we talked about this thing last week or two weeks ago. This was justification means just as if you never sinned. You are a new creation, a new Genesis recreated in Christ Jesus. The old is gone. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Your spirit, man, is absolutely perfect right now through the work of God and the washing of it, the water of the word, which is the next verse I want to show you in Ephesians 5. Now, I talk about husbands and wives, but it's symbolic talking about the church or the bride. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved his church and gave himself for her, that he might what? Sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but he should, should be holy and without blemish. See, you were this. But now you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been cleansed by what? The washing of water in, of the word. And as you look at the mirror of the word of God, just like the labor was a mirror, you look at the mirror of the word of God, you see who, not the blood stain, not the, the, the blood in the water. Now you look in the mirror of God's word and see the work of Christ done in your life, the finished work of Jesus, how you've been washed, sanctified, made holy. Then you can enter that holy place. You can enter into the holy of holies into the, as you have faith in the finished work of Jesus. You're never going to feel like you can go into that place or that special secret place you have with God if you're still feeling down about yourself or I'm still this, I'm still that. No, you need to look in the mirror of God's word. You're not looking for stains anymore. You're not looking for the blood spots and dirt spots anymore. You've already been washed. You're now looking in the mirror of God's word to see who you are in Christ. The spiritual labor of the word, you're looking in the mirror, the reflection of what God says your born-again spirit looks like. You, have not, you do not have the ability, neither do I, to know what your spirit looks like without looking in the word of God, the mirror of God's word. You can't see it. You can't see your spirit. Amen? But you can see the word. And that's what that labor represents, the word of God and looking in it, not for our stains anymore, not for our sins anymore, but what Christ has done for us. Amen? So after that, after sacrifice, after they were washed up and clean, they would go into the holy place. And this next door was called the truth. And in that room, there were three pieces of furniture. We had the menorah, the table of showbread, and the altar of incense. This room was 30 feet long, 15 feet wide, and 15 feet uh, tall. It had an enclosed ceiling. So in this room, there was no natural light. Sun, moon, stars wasn't going to help that room at all. It'd be pitch black except for the light that came from the only source in the room, which was the menorah. Okay. That's what we're going to look at the rest of our time is the menorah. The menorah burned continuously with pure olive oil that was provided by the priest morning and evening. Amen? And I tell you, you burn, whether you know you burn, you burn morning and evening with the pure oil of the Holy Spirit that's provided for you by your great high priest. Whether you feel it or not, you, it is a priest's responsibility to provide that pure oil, and he did provide the pure oil, and you burn in your spirit, man, morning and evening. And you are the light of the world. You are that light. You are that, that source of light that reflects from you, that comes from you. Now, this menorah was not just an average one. I bought one once when we were in Israel together. That piece still falls off the top, but I got a discount because it's broken. I've glued it three times. The thing still falls off. But the one that they actually made back in the day was way fancier than the one I bought for like 10 bucks or something. This, this menorah was 5.3 feet tall and weighed approximately 110 pounds. And it was made out of pure, solid gold. It was the only, imagine what that's worth today. I don't know what 110 pounds of gold, and what it is an ounce now, but that's uh, several million dollars, I'm sure, not to count the sentimental and spiritual value and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, 
The menorah is the only piece of furniture in the tabernacle that was made of solid gold. Other pieces were covered with gold and wood covered in gold, but this was made of gold only. And this guy who made this uh, was filled with the Holy Spirit to do this. He made it from one piece of gold. I mean, it's amazing. You have the picture up there? Okay, so again, much fancier than mine. How do you beat that out with a hammer and stuff? Like That is absolutely amazing with one piece of gold. So the pure gold represents the purity and holiness of God. And I can actually see the Trinity in this. I'm sure you guys can too. Pure gold, again, represents the holiness of God. We see the only light source in the room, and Jesus is the light of the world. And then the pure olive oil that causes it to burn night and day, the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit there. So on the menorah, you can see there's one shaft down the middle, and, uh, and then three branches on each side. These branches represent the Jews and Gentiles coming together as one new man in Christ. There's not a replacement theology. There's not a, the church is replaced. No, there's just one new man. No, there is no Jew or Gentile anymore. It's one new man. We're now one, one faith in Christ. Amen? Amen? That's what the Bible says, right? So, uh, so six is the number of man. You can see that three and three, Jew and Gentiles. But when they come together on the vine, in the branch, the branches come together on the vine, the number is seven, which is God's perfect number. And we're only perfect when we come into Christ. We come in here at him. So on each of these branches, there were three cups or bowls, three buds, and three blossoms, uh, and they looked like an almond branch. Now, you could probably spend an hour or more just talking about the symbols of each of those buds and the flowers and whatever, and I'm not going to do that today, And uh, but you can. You can go back and study it. But the, the thoroughness, the thoughtfulness of God's design in this is just it's mind-boggling, really, just how thoughtful he is. But it made me think of Aaron's staff. When Aaron's staff, the people are rebelling, so we don't want Aaron to be our leader. He said, put all the rods in the presence of God, we'll see what happens. Aaron puts his staff in there, and it sprouted, brought forth buds, and produced blossoms and yielded almonds in the presence of the Lord. And what is it telling you? When you stay connected to the vine, you stay connected to the vine, the branches are going to produce. You're going to produce. We're the branches. He's the vine. And... Uh, we, uh, when we're with him, we're going to produce these buds and sprout. How? In the presence of God. It's not your job to make the fruit come. It's your job to abide. It's not your job to make the light happen. It's your job to abide. You abide in him. His word abides in you. You're going you're gonna to reflect the light of Jesus. You're going to have that pure light burning in you. And Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. All you have to do is abide in the vine, which is the center trunk of the tree, if you will, and where the branches, and you will, you will bear much fruit. Not some, but much. Amen? So uh, one more symbol I want to highlight today from the menorah, this being the day of Pentecost. But the menorah burned, like I said, night and day with pure olive oil provided by the priest morning and evening. And you think about this, this is the same anointing oil that would have been used to anoint the priests, anoint everything in the tabernacle. But on the day of Pentecost, our great high priest Jesus provided the oil and lit the fire for his church. Sometimes I think it's Father, Son, and Holy Bible. And like the, the, the Holy Spirit is just like the, I don't know, like a stepchild or something. Someone that, I don't know, that's not even, a, I don't know a good analogy. Just someone that's not really a part of the family. Like it's just, it's, it's Father God and Jesus, good. Holy Spirit, ah, whatever. It's not like that. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. 
He is God. There's no, there's no uh, separation between them. There's no competition between them. It is God. So our great high priest, Jesus, he provided the oil and he lit the fire on his church in Acts 2. And that was the will of God. It's not denominationalism. It's not the Baptists say this, the Presbyterians say this, the Methodists say that, and the Pentecostals say this. No, it's the word of God. There is no, let God be true and everything else a lie. Amen. This is what Jesus did. Jesus did this. And it wasn't for just back in that day. It is for today. What good would it be to pour out a gift for a couple a hundred years or 30, 40 years, and all of a sudden it's irrelevant now? Like, uh, it doesn't make sense. And you see the, the longevity in God's thought process and planning. He doesn't think like that. He's a multi-generational God. But look at what, I want to show you this. Acts 2, 32 and 33 say this. This Jesus, everyone loves Jesus. He's a smiling one over here. God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father, so Jesus received something from the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit, and he poured out what you now see and hear. This is Peter preaching here. We see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's preaching to the crowd of 3,000 plus people. He's saying, we're not drunk like you suppose. What you're seeing, what you're hearing, Jesus received it from the Father. He poured out the pure oil on us and lit the fire. And he's, he's, this is exactly what's going on, what he prophesied about in Joel 2. The Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, praying in tongues, the gift of the Spirit, is 100% the pure nature of God. It comes to the pure olive oil of the Holy Spirit. You may have been around somebody that was uh, weird, but the Holy Spirit is still pure. And the, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit are still pure, and they come right from the Father. No matter how weird the person was, and they blamed being mean on their, their prophet, or they blamed this on their uh, whatever, and they blamed this on something. No, they just need a fresh touch of Jesus, amen, and know the love of God. The gifts are supposed to flow out of people. The, 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 the vine, you're, connect, you're abiding in the vine, you're going to have fruit. Things are going to flow in our lives, amen? So Jesus received from the Father the pure olive oil, and then he poured out the pure olive oil in Acts 2 on his church in the upper room. There was 120 in there, and uh, fire came on them. Tongues of fire went on each and every one of them. So we can't say the Holy Spirit was just for a few, or it's just for the frozen chosen, or whatever other groups you want to No, the Holy Spirit was for the world. It's for the people. It's for his children. I want to show you something about tongues, because sometimes I think tongues gets a really bad name and a bad rap by, I don't know, religious people or charismaniacs that represent God in a bad way. People come up to you and say, you're not going to heaven because you can't pray in tongues. Well, they're foolish. That's foolish. There's no scripture for that. I pray in tongues. I do it every day. I do it usually a lot every day. And it's good for me because I need the Holy Spirit's help to make me, help me flow in what he wants me to do because my flesh still wants to dominate sometimes. So what I'm doing is I'm crucifying my flesh and doing stuff that I don't feel like doing sometimes, praying in the Holy Spirit. And what I'm doing, I'm, I'm yielding to God in me. Look at what Zephaniah 3.9 says this. It says, um, it's amazing. For then I will restore to the peoples a pure language, and they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. I want you to think about this. Remember, one accord in, in, in pure language, all peoples, and it's restoring. 
So it doesn't say I'm going to give a new language. It's restoring. It's restoring something that was previously there, but then it wasn't there. And, in, and you think back in Genesis 11, during the days of the Tower of Babel, the Bible says there was one language. He, uh, Genesis 11.1. 1. It says, now the whole world, the whole earth had one language and one speech. Now, people assume this was Hebrew. They all spoke Hebrew, but the Hebrew nation didn't exist until the next chapter. We see Abraham in the next chapter. So it's quite possible they had a spiritual heavenly language, and they all spoke the same spiritual heavenly language, and that was the same spiritual heavenly language that was stored in Acts 2. I'll show you this in the, in the Bible. This says, but I want you to just consider that it might be a possibility, okay? It could be true. Let's look at this in Genesis eleven seven. 7. It says this, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. So at that time there was one language, and God came down, which included the Holy Spirit, and he confused their one language, gave them multiple languages, and scattered them over the whole face of the earth. Okay? Now I want you to remember again what Zephaniah 3.9 said. I want to read it again. For then I will restore to the peoples a pure language, that all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. Acts 2 says this. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Zephaniah. Guys, this is birth in the heart of God, prophesied long before it happened in Acts 2. And suddenly there came a sound from where did it come from? Heaven. I, I'm sorry I have to beat this, and maybe it's just for me, or maybe it's people watching. I'm telling you, I was told it was from the devil. You don't know if you're talking to the devil. Where did it say it came from? Okay, where, who did it say poured it out? Jesus, you're not praying to demons. You're talking to God, amen? And talking to God is good. Hallelujah, there's a kindergarten thing to learn right there. Talking to God is good, all right? So let me go back. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing, mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. There appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Praise God. Birth from the Spirit, prophesied by the Spirit, poured out the pure oil uh, on them, and they all spoke through the Spirit, giving utterance in tongues, in a special, new, restored heavenly language. Okay? Verse 5. And they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and when this, this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Now think about this. The first time God came down, including the Holy Spirit, confused their languages, scattered them all over the place. The next time he came down, he gathered them together, said all nations of the world were there. He gathered them together, restored a new language, and there was unity. There was unity. But to say they were in one accord, they were still confused. They said confused in both, but they were confused but drawn together because they heard them speaking in their own languages. So Acts 2 says they were in one accord or in unity, which goes back to the menorah. The three and the three, the Jews and Gentiles coming together as one new man through Christ. 
the unity that God provides through the seven being the perfect number. So the gifts of the Holy Spirit and restoring of the pure language was for the whole world. All the nations had come together in Jerusalem that day. 3,000 were added to the number that day. So I want to say this to you guys. The pure oil of heaven, it's for you. If, if, if the altar was for you, if the, the labor was for you, wouldn't the menorah be for you too? And the next one is the communion and going on to the altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant and the whole thing, the veil. All of it was Christ's provision for his church. And I want to tell you, if you've never prayed in the Holy Spirit, never prayed in tongues before, it's okay. You're not going to go to hell if you haven't prayed in tongues yet. Grace to you. Grace to you. But I want to tell you this, you can do it. You can pray in the Holy Spirit. You can pray in a heavenly language, and you connect your heart to the Spirit of God. And you're, you're communicating mysteries back and forth to, with God and you. It's like you're whispering secrets to the Father, and He's whispering secrets back to you. You're, in, you're interceding. You're talking. You're praying, and God's sharing these secrets, these mysteries. The only source of light in the holy place was from the menorah. Revelation, knowledge is going to come to you. Light, revelation, come to you as you pray in the Spirit. Open up the Word of God and read and pray in the Spirit. I don't understand this, God. Pray in the Spirit. And it's pure olive oil. It's good, and it's good for you. It is good for you. It's good for your body. They did a study, I don't think it was Oral Roberts, that actually good for your body. It's good for your brain. It's good. It says it's, it builds you up when you pray in tongues. And, and you look at the Word, it's for, it doesn't just say your spirit. All of you. It builds you up. So I just want to encourage you guys and in close with this, Acts 2, 38 and 39 says this, because you have theologians say these things passed away. It was only for these people. And I'm telling you, there wasn't, that was birthed in the, the demonic heart of Satan. I couldn't say it any stronger. I guess that's pretty bold, but, but it is. If it didn't come from God, it came from some other source. If Jesus went through all this stuff to pour it out, I don't care what any theologian says, it's for me. And it's good. And it's from God. And what does it say in the Bible? Acts 2, 38 and 39. Then Peter said to them, the crowd, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission or forgiveness of your sins. And you, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the promise is for you, to your children, and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. The promise of the Spirit is for you, for your children, and everyone who's ever going to be born on this planet. It's from God and it's for you. So I want to encourage you today, you're never going to receive the gifts of God through guilt and condemnation, through feeling bad about yourself, feeling unworthy about yourself. You have to wash that stuff off. The sacrifice has already been burnt and slain for you. You've been made righteous. You've been made holy through the sacrifice of Jesus. Now you get to boldly, this stuff, the reason he did what he did was for us. So it wasn't for you. Who's it for? Amen. So we got to get past ourselves and receive these things by faith in the goodness of God, not in this unworthy thing. And worthy is not even the question. He's worthy. And if your father wants you to have a good gift, why not say yes? I don't care if you said no a hundred times. I'm going to say no to that tongue stuff. I'm not, tongue stuff's just weird. But guess what? You don't understand everything there is about God, and I don't either. And he says it's good for you, it's good for you. He says it's a gift, it's a gift. Amen? So I want to ask you today to humble yourself, if you haven't received and prayed in tongues before, and ask God to fill you with His Spirit. Ask Him to release the gift of tongues in your life and other gifts in your life. Because it's for the gift of tongues is for you to build you up. But once you're built up, the other gifts are going to flow through you too to help build up His church. 
That's what the gift is for. It's for the unification of the church, the, the menorah, the unity in one accord. Amen? Amen. Will you guys stand? I want to pray a blessing on you guys. The gifts of God are not to boast about. They're to praise God with and thank God for. Amen. So Jesus poured out the pure olive oil. He lit the flame. And the church of Jesus Christ has never been the same since. So maybe you've heard other things. But I challenge you, read the Bible for yourself. Just read it for yourself. You'll see the things I'm telling you are true. Amen. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that was your will and is still your will to pour out your pure olive oil on your children, that they would burn night and day, day and night with the fire of God, that you light the fire, you light the wick, and you cause it to burn and reflect the light of God around this world. I ask you, God, right now to touch people. Touch people. Fill them with fresh oil today. Let gifts of the Holy Spirit flow in their lives that will bless them, but also bless the nations of this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray for those that have, uh, have tried to pray in the Spirit or haven't had a breakthrough yet, that today would be their day in Jesus' name, by the grace of God, not by works, not by boasting, not by anything else, but by the grace of God and your finished work and your finished provision for us. And God, I thank you for your word and your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you want someone to lay hands on you for a piece of the gift of the Holy Spirit, I'd be glad to do that. Um, but you don't have to have it happen that way. For me, someone laid hands on me. For Holly, she was at home praying by herself, doing devotions, and it happened that way. So God's not limited that way. So anyway, but if you do want prayer, you can ask me. And uh, God bless you guys. You are dismissed. Thank you.